Unsee the future. Think blinks. What do sustainability champions most want right now to help make better emotional impact with the possibilities? I'm Timo Peach, and in a micro-series of interviews for this special episode of my idiosyncratic research cast, I've been meeting changemakers to ask them this question. But why this question? And how did they make sense of it? Unsee the Future explores some of the big themes of our times and how they might be shaping the story we think we're in. Because my work as a music maker and a creative gives me a storyteller's perspective as I explore the human planet's era of crisis. It's a traumatising time we all find ourselves in, full of phantom fears and frightening hard data, and so much cultural noise that most of us don't know where phantom fears end and frightening hard data begins, let alone what to do with it. But the key word there is, I think, culture. Because I've found as I've researched that all our crises are being driven by what's in our heads as we look out at the world, the filters we've learned to see it through. Human beings make sense of the terrifying complex chaos of reality on any given Monday by turning it into a story. We don't even notice ourselves doing it everywhere. An understanding of why things are the way they are that can be retold much more simply with clearer implications of what to do with it. Even if it's to reconfirm our gnawing nihilistic dread and pop back to the off-licence. Because crucial to how stories work in our heads is that psychologically we need to emotionally wed to ideas in order to feel motivated to act on them. We're all empathetic suckers. This is big when you think about it. All our fears and beliefs are based on something narrative about who we think we are. Who's good, who's bad, what is worth what and why. And we spend and live and love and hate based on our personal brand Bibles. So as you'll know well if you've waded through the curriculum of Unsee the Future up until now, I think slightly strongly we have one ultimate imperative in the face of the climate crisis and all the biodiversal, social, racial, waste, poverty, democracy and mental health emergencies on planet Earth all at once right now. We have to write new stories of us and get over our brittle cynicisms about getting stuck into this like our web of life depends on it. Because the stories we thought we were in are failing us. The bigger collective stories that enough of us have felt part of in the past to shape the world we know today, as well as the worlds of belief within us. And I think inside, most of us in the modern world are feeling it like lostness, like a dreadful growing ache of grief. And in the West, we don't really know how to look grief in the eye or make narrative sense of death. The Green Revolution is a genuinely new story of us, one supremely tied to the principles of life and how it works and how it could emerge from the modern world and where we find ourselves now. 
It's a rich, connected story that has its believers passionate about its possibilities. But those believers are still far from a band big enough to tip the balance of bad behaviours at global scale, never mind at effective enough speed for the catastrophes we are now facing. So what do they think will influence how people feel about the possibilities of doing things differently? The frankly exciting possibilities of sustainability that they're desperately trying to champion in the middle of global destructive habits. And what might these frontline planet workers need to help them inspire culture change? If most of our revolutions in the past have failed, how do changemakers imagine enough people might own the green one as their own? I spoke to five people working on different sustainability challenges around the world. Some are running businesses themselves, some are working in organisations as portfolio holders for planet issues. But whether they're partnering with colleagues or clients preoccupied with other responsibilities, each of my guests has to face how to show people a different perspective on the world that they will begin to feel, to instigate new ways of doing whatever it is they're doing. So what do each of them most want right now to help make better emotional impact? Jesse Rittenhouse of Spinnaker Group in Florida had an immediate answer. The thing that always stands out in my mind is good storytelling. So if, if you're able to tell your story, your passion, your why of what you're doing and why you're doing it, you know, and, and then get into the how and the, and the what afterwards, like really tell your why. Yeah, if you can explain your whole reasoning, your whole why, your whole purpose, you kind of exude a passion. Yes. We are passionate about the work that we do. And so if we can communicate that to the rest of the public, whether um, there's points in our story that connect with them or not, they're going to feel that passion, right? Yeah. They're going to they're gonna want to be excited about it as well. Typically, when you when you are excited about something, you find that the other person that you're talking to reacts to it. Yes. And I think that's really key in storytelling is just really, you know, talk about your personal reason why or your company's personal reason why you're doing this, how you think it matters. And usually on those points, you'll connect with somebody out there. But if not, at least tell it passionately, you know, yes. at least tell it with, you know, with a purpose and, and that will get the reaction that you're looking for, at least, or at least the curiosity. It'll pique the curiosity to get them to look into it a little bit more or listen to you. Pique the curiosity. That's interesting. So what is your why? You're part of a group that is already, uh, the Spinnaker group is already in existence to build green homes, be part of the green revolution. It has been for a long time. What's, what's your why for being involved with that? I really do believe that everyone should be able to have like a, a healthy place to live, work, play, a, a, you know, a cleaner place, a healthier place, a, a more sustainable place for themselves, their children, their children's children. I, I really believe that, you know, it's not just a, a corporate tagline or, or something that I write down, you know, on the wall and just walk away from. It's when I look around and I see pollution in the world, and I see how it's affecting people, how it's affecting our food systems, how it's affecting our environment, our degradation of forests, extinction of animals, polluting our own bodies with microplastics. When I think about that, it, it really troubles me, you know, and it worries me. And so I think everyone deserves to have a, 
a clean, healthy place to live. And if I can do that, physically do that, and the work that I'm doing, have some sort of impact uh, in the rest of the world by working with Spinnaker Group or, or working in the environmental movements that I, I help volunteer with, then I know that I'm contributing in some way, that I'm helping to, to make sure that everyone can live in a healthier and better place. But personal motivation has to be turned into a strategy to make a difference. Ella Everett, based in Barcelona from digital social impact business Both of Us, suggests that a truly effective sustainability plan might sound quite complex to consider, but it's the very connected scope of it that can inspire an emotional response. And there are ways into helping people see it. I would say, and this is actually I've stolen from a hero of mine called Rob Hopkins, who is um, ah. the founder of the Transition Network. And what he says is that we need to be looking for win, 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 win solutions. So not just a solution that's good for the company or not just good for the environment, but that is good for everything. Right. So it's good for society. It's good for the employees. It's good for the the whole supply chain. It's also good for people on the other side of the world. It's good for the environment locally and globally. It's good for the business in terms of, well, of course, in terms of revenue, in terms of innovation, and in terms of future generations. For a company really to be sustainable, however perfect, however wonderful they're doing, however much they're contributing to sustainability, if there's not this innovation and the, the revenue side, then actually it's still not sustainable at all because it can't yeah. keep going. It can't keep going. For the emotional side as well, it has to be really coming from the center of the company. So involving the, the stakeholders, involving the employees, the customers and everything like this and getting them to have an emotional connection and having them to win as well. So the customers know they're making the right choices so that um, everyone involved is is emotionally connected and knows that everything they're doing is is going to something really positive. Yeah. Now, you're a consultant with uh, a real permaculture perspective, aren't you? Where's the emotional centre of that for you? Why is that maybe central? Well, to start with, I use the, the permaculture principles a lot for everything I do from personal life to work to literally everything because I think it is, it's a way of thinking. And one of the... One of the permaculture principles is observe. So observe and interact. And I think this is super relevant in getting this emotional side because actually, if you're going to work with a company, if you haven't really observed the company, then you don't know if you're helping them or hindering them. I was working with a community in Nepal and these are kind of the, the untouchables. They're considered as the untouchables. So yeah. the poorest community, one of the poorest communities in the world. And the problem was you've got a lot of NGOs or organizations will go and try to support this, this community, bringing over this kind of Western view and saying, okay, well, this is what you need to do. And this is what you need to do without actually making this connection with the community. Right. and finding out what they need and this is the same with everything so with companies finding out okay what do you need what do your employees need how does it feel like to work in this company and what's the what's the vision you know it all needs to be about this future vision and connecting with this you know because you can't make positive changes unless people are connected to it and they have this emotional kind of calling because otherwise they'll just they can't really be bothered with that the principles of permaculture are from the ground up in every sense 
But to make transition happen, there does seem to be an inevitable need to help key people currently hierarchically at the top feel the emotional reality of their influential decisions. Ian Groek has worked in some of the hardest places to implement sustainability, heading to sectors like the aviation industry precisely because he saw them as the most impactful places to make change. He thinks the language of sustainability is much more everyday in business than it ever was, but transformative emotional impact isn't generated by general corporate declarations. I think an emotional impact around sustainability really involves senior business leaders uh, having a, a, a personal commitment to making this happen. Uh, sustainability often is, is, is seen with a little bit of greenwash around it. It's a, it's a buzzword. Everybody thinks the company has to be demonstrating sustainability. And I think uh, for that to, to make sense and to have an emotional impact, the people at the top really have to understand what it means for their company. Yeah. and what it means for them personally and what they can do to turn the words into practical action. Right, yeah. Having spent almost 20 years working in sustainability, uh, what's always attracted me to the profession is companies and sectors, industry sectors, where sustainability really is at that kind of crux, something which is actually central to the business moving forward. If you go into some sectors and some companies, and you look at the sustainability agenda, it feels a little bit bland. But when you go into yeah, yeah. some of those big sectors which have a big impact, aviation, transport, infrastructure, that's kind of where the sustainability agenda is happening. If you get it wrong, uh, it means the next generation or the next generation after that are going to be inheriting something significantly worse as a society than if we get it right. And that's kind of where for me, sustainability needs to be. And those business leaders in charge of those companies or leading those companies really need to recognize that, that this is no longer a game. This is not something which is uh, something just to do for lip service or greenwash. It's something that in those big, uh, heavy impacting sectors, change really needs to happen. And it's those individuals at the top who will drive that change and make it, make it real. I love the way you put that, that if you make the wrong impact or don't make sufficient emotional impact now, then generations to come are going to reap an extra problem. I think that's very interesting. Were you very aware of that every time you were in a room talking to people? I think um, people are becoming more aware of it. And I think it's always it's often at the forefront of my mind when I'm having conversations with senior people that some of the issues that we're talking with now about now, 20 years ago, they felt that they were generations away. Yeah. The impact of climate change was something that maybe the next generation's children might have to deal with. Yeah, right. It was something that felt a little bit theoretical. When I started off uh, in the sustainability agenda, the biodiversity crisis that we're in at the moment wasn't really something that people understood. But now, when you're thinking about biodiversity and the impact on multiple species going extinct, the impact on insects and yeah. all those kind of uh, critical species that keep our ecosystems together and the fact that it's happening now the, the number of species going extinct the biodiversity loss that we're experiencing the impacts of climate change isn't even the next generation's problem it's today's generation generation's problem and, and that's happened remarkably quickly it's happened in 20 years and i think that emotional buy-in 
is sometimes missing along yes. with the business case that it was previously felt a little bit of a moral issue or something that is altruistic and that's where the emotion came in and often was patted away as being it's not the business case but actually it is the business case it now is. because it's happening to me and you and our children and our next door neighbours and the next country away and the next country after that it's happening now it is happening now and gradually more of us are seeing it one of the biggest implications for business leaders involves staff how do you significantly reposition an organization of different people all preoccupied with different things anna frizzell sustainability manager of the rnli suggests that developing some more unifying emotional ownership of sustainability is about tapping into the stories found at the real human impact level of your work, which is also where you'll find some practical insights into how to apply your grand social impact strategies. She thinks... It's about really hearing and considering the voices of our people and the communities, you know, what their fears, hopes, motivations and ambitions are for, mm. for a more sustainable RNLI, but also a more sustainable world in which we operate. Yeah, that's the obvious thing for the RNLI. It's supremely connected to the outside. And there's a lot of mental health issues connected to simply being outside. Your people are frontliners. What are they telling you about how they feel about the state of the planet they're looking at every day? 5% of the RNLI are based centrally but actually 95% of the RNLI are out there in communities right. living, living, eating, breathing it um, every day. And so most of them have a very close relationship with the, the sea and the coastal environment. And, and for us, it's rather ironic that, you know, we use fossil fuels to power our boats, to get out there and mm. rescue people. But fossil fuel has climate change impacts that makes it riskier for people in community. So there's more need to use more fossil fuels to go out and rescue more people. And yeah. so there's this kind of vicious circle almost that we have. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, our people really recognise that because they see the impacts on a day-to-day -day mm. basis. You know, how do we work on decarbonising, saving lives effectively? Yes. And then what does that actually translate to in terms of understanding those impacts on our people and the communities in which they live and operate so we're not divorced from what happens to those communities and those people um it's not like they live and do over here and then there are an ally over here uh, they are inextricably uh, kind of interwoven yes and so again you know it comes back to if you like understanding and listening to our people about what's actually going on around them um but also kind of understanding that context from a, a, a kind of wider decarbonisation point of view. That's very interesting because you're saying that in order to create more emotional impact in telling the story of climate change in the planet, it's about giving voice to people on the front line. So that's bottom up, which, yes. might, which sounds like it's a challenge for any big corporation and you're a charity, but there's some corporate structure going on there, isn't there, that must be hard to overcome. How could you get that into your rooms to help communicate it to leadership? Well, asking people is a good yeah. start. Uh, you know, actually using our our frameworks and processes and systems and our you know engagement, the way that we engage with people, uh, to actually do a bit more listening. Uh, yes. And and you know, there's a certain amount we need to tell, but actually, then you need to be quiet and listen, and actually really think about and consider what the people are telling us. So, yeah. where 
floods have happened, where coastal erosion is happening, where coastal communities are, are not sustainable. Um, you know, there's no, if, for example, there's no work or there's no ability to live in a coastal community, we don't have crew. They have to live and work when they're on call within five minutes of the station yeah. to enable us to launch on time. And so what happens, as I said, to the communities and the people directly impacts on us. And also it's recognising, you know, we've got 5,000 volunteer crew. They all do day jobs and have day lives. They have knowledge and experience and dreams and hopes and motivations um, that we need to be cognizant of and understand. Yeah. You know, they we can go out and say, oh, we want to achieve this and this is our ambition and all the rest of it. And you can find there's a lot of people sitting there thinking, I knew this 15 years ago. I do this in my day job. Why are yes. you telling me? Why aren't you asking me? What are my ideas? What have I done? What do I think we should be doing? And so I think it's really important you know, that the, there's that engagement piece with people. And also, I think when you're trying to talk to senior leaders, you know, they're they're operating in a, a strategic world. Yeah. But the more real life examples you can bring to them to to bring, you know, this word sustainability. What does it mean? Uh, what does it actually mean for us as an organization as well as well as the wider world? It's our people that can articulate that. Yes. Can actually demonstrate and show in my job as crew or in my day job or in my family, this is what it means for me in yeah. my place. Yeah, yeah, they can demonstrate it. I love that. Um, you know, as any good newspaper reporter would say, without people, there's no story. So if we're trying to tell a new story of the possibilities, where are your people? Absolutely. And, you know, they better understand what's happening in their own communities. So, say for example, if you look at things like climate change adaptation, um, so, you know, climate change impacts happening, they're happening faster and bigger than, you know, globally science had predicted, um, and that's been recognised now. But actually, I don't know what's happening with the local authority and climate change adaptation plans in a particular community. You know, we, all, we have 238 lifeboat stations and we lifeguard on over about 240-odd beaches. Yeah. The people who live there, who, who work there, who operate there, they understand what's going on in their place. It's important that we listen and understand the intelligence they've got, the knowledge and experience they've got. Yeah. We don't have to sit here in the centre and necessarily work all that out or try and find <laughs> exactly. that data and information. Just ask people. Just ask people, I agree. And then, you know, the emotion is, like any good story, it's truth. It's emotional truth because people are living it and everyone will recognise it. And they're being heard and they feel they're contributing and they have a say. If you like, the RNLI is moving forward with them. We're not doing it to them. Mm. And I think for emotional connection, that is so important. You know, some people are motivated by uh, social issues. Some people are motivated by environmental issues. Some are economic. Some are all of them. It's not one size fits all. It's not one size fits all. And this is one of the fundamental practical challenges of sustainability and fundamental strengths. It's the path to real resilience, rooted in a deeper shared ownership emotionally. That's why it's transformative for business. Working through its processes is likely to get an organization's people caring about what it does at a whole new level. But I don't want to sound too hopey-changey. Squaring up to this, especially at the beginning, 
is hard work. Matty Stanislaus knows a thing or two about helping people confront realities. Current interim director of the Global Battery Alliance, he's also worked at a senior level as an advisor to the Obama administration all eight of its years. So what does he think we need to get better emotional impact? I think we need people, and we need people who want to do the hard work mm. of trying to figure it out, right? And we're all in this walled-off world, you know, a mixture of our culture, of our education, of our experience. And if we're truly authentically going to drive towards sustainability, it requires us to, to be at the table, stay at the table, listen to each other, and do the hard work. What does it mean in terms of doing business? What does it mean in terms of building community? You know, what does it mean uh, in terms of policymaking? So uh, I begin with people and keeping people at the table. That's interesting. People at the table. Now you have, you know, your journey has seen both ends of the impact of sustainability from a human point of view. As a young man, you were an immigrant to the U.S., I understand, and you've seen life in many different levels, including, of course, all the way to World Economic Forum and working in the Obama administration at a senior level. That's grown-up stuff. How do you put those two things together in your head? Well, as I've uh, liked to talk about my journey, and I reflected a lot my mom's passing this past week, you know, it's a, it's a collective journey so my family fled Sri Lanka. And so at a very early age, you know, I recognized not only was I immigrant, you know, trying to figure it out, you know, the courage it took my parents to figure it out in a foreign place. Yeah. A place that he didn't have a job, but the openness of people facilitating my, my parents' presence in the U.S. And then the human rights issues really helped form my early life. You know, right. I led when the human rights issues got really violent in Sri Lanka. I led the organizing uh, to respond to that. I worked with uh, human rights groups, Amnesty International. At the age of 19, I engaged Congress in putting wow. uh, conditions on aid to Sri Lanka, which didn't make me popular with the Sri Lankan government. <laughs> well, <laughs> And then um, during my undergraduate time, uh, I was studying chemical engineering and I also was doing this human rights work. There was this major incident in India uh, called the Bhopal incident. The Bhopal uh, incident, One yes. of the worst chemical uh, disasters in history. And I really kind of shifted my trajectory from only chemical engineering to the human rights experience and trying to be an advocate. And so that led me to go to law school, went to law school with the real intention of trying to link up these issues around the environmental conditions, the human right conditions. And, you know, and, and then as I practiced law, you know, I decided to, I just needed to be, and I was practicing at a Manhattan law firm. You know, it was okay, but it was not exciting, you know, and nor did I feel passionate about it. Right. And so I started doing a lot of volunteering with uh, lower income communities of color uh, who, have, who are experiencing the, 
the health consequences of pollution. I helped uh, organize, work with them, and then a, uh, then a response to those conditions. Worked on legislation to address those conditions. Um, did a major effort on putting communities at the center of rebuilding their neighborhoods. Right. And put in place uh, the first of its kind in the United States, a, a community-driven process of a rebuilding neighborhoods where financing, tax credits, infrastructure flows through a community-driven process, you know, and that led me to being selected by the Obama administration to take that program um, uh, uh, glo- uh, nationally. You know, so. Well, I mean, that's interesting that you've combined that the idea of engineering and law, which are quite, I think, quite related in a sense, but that you've kept that human element, a, a really conscious sense of that, that actually seems to have empowered you to just feel like it's my right to get stuck in and, and try and make change. So you've embodied the emotional impact there. How do you communicate that to others, the emotional imperative? Well, that's a good question. You know, sometimes you had to hit people over the head with it. <laughs> sometimes, you, yeah. sometimes you have to like walk people through, you know, what it, what is it, what does it mean to listen? You know, uh, you know, in my world right now is like I listen, I engage with the CEOs of some of the largest companies in the world. Yeah, what you do. I engage with executive directors of civil society organizations dealing with child labor, you know, and, you know, what I tell all of them is like we have to sit, we have to be at the table and we have to not come to the table with our demands. We have to come to the table of how do we take what our interest is yeah. and blend it and align it with the interest of people that you may not normally, frankly, like or think about. Yeah. You know, is yeah. having the temperament to really work to that. You know, and so what I have learned from others who now I was I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people who are a lot more uh, inspired leaders than I am. You know, I've learned a lot from them. You know, is that you need to be at the table, you need to listen, you need to build those small bridges. Sometimes it takes tough one-on-one conversations to then get people to the table to like really work together on reframing uh, the world. Reframing the world. Do you find a difference between, you know, more local communities sitting around those tables, getting people around those tables. Is there a difference emotionally, uh, humanly, between those and boardroom tables, those and international level tables? At least at one one level, uh, there is a substantial difference, you know, right? you know, because at the community level, you are people who are purely defined, and most of the people are volunteering their time about improving the conditions and those conditions are based on their human experience, right? So either health impairment, opportunity. I mean, it's really visceral day-to-day. So they're more emotionally invested. They're already more emotionally invested. Is that the implication? Yeah, oh, very much so. Very much so. You know, and, and I, but when you get to the corporate level, you know, even with the, more, with the companies who call the big game, you know, there's still the question of, are you truly emotionally invested in the outcome or, or is it transactional, mm, you know? Yeah. And I found too often it's transactional. I would say it's the rare 
a CEO who's willing to subsume his or her ego to say, while I may be at this place, it doesn't make me any better from aligning with others to achieve a collective good. Achieving is a collective goal. It's the only way to lead change, isn't it? But Matty does embody it there, knowing firsthand what the vulnerability of living unsustainably actually feels like. It's his personal story. Well, good storytelling, as any screenwriter will tell you, carries an inherent vulnerability within it. And perhaps like any good actor, the sustainability champion has to embrace the personal cost of this, no matter how deep its implications. As Ella helped me consider. You have to feel the pain of society, of the environment, in order to actually be able to make these choices and make, um, make changes. No, totally. You're talking there about grief, in a way. Um, yeah. uh, I think of a speaker like Stephen Jenkinson, who, who speaks very strongly about the idea of accepting grief and all the things we can't do. And, th and this sounds immediately spiritual, emotional, very disconnected from can do, sort it out, parachute people in. Uh, and yet yeah. that very permaculture sense of connection, of building relationships, partly with the truth, like storytelling, mm -hmm. is... Getting at the truth is where you get solutions, right? And that's what I guess you're trying to build in your consultancy is help people make the connections with the truth. Exactly. And it's all about as well looking into looking into the future because you need to feel this pain, but you also need to be to have this hope and to be able to imagine something yeah. better. Because if you can't imagine the future, if you can't imagine how your company would be in 10 years, yes. if you can't imagine living in a world or in a city where um you know, where everyone is living off the food that they grow. If you don't have this imagination, um, then you can't, you can't create it. You can't create something yeah. that you can't see. And then you can look at, okay, how do we reach that? And it gives people this yearning of, yes. um, of something that they didn't know existed because oh. it's... <laughs> a, a yearning for something they didn't know existed. I love that. Yes, that's exactly what we've got to do. It's new stories of us. Yeah. Exactly. And just picturing this future of being like, okay, how, again, going back to the win, 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 win solutions, because it's like, people think it's not possible. It's finding the way of being able to win in every situation and create this, this future to create a world where we're thinking about our, the generations to come. So we want to be good ancestors. If you're bringing that into your work and if you can envision, okay, what, what world do I want my children or my grandchildren to live in? And then it kind of helps you come up with this roadmap almost of, mm. of reaching it. A roadmap of reaching the future, starting with creating a yearning for something people didn't know existed. What a storytelling challenge. Anna admits that bringing this story every day to people, resisting it, can be wearing. But the right language between all groups involved can actually take the weight off leaders' shoulders. So it's worth keeping understanding ears to hand regularly as a sustainability champion. That's really important because it can become very disheartening and mm. dispiriting. As all changes you know people are resistant to change and they can often feel threatened by it and particularly you know at senior leadership level we kind of presume that they're the font of all knowledge 
young people coming out of university now who are studying business studies or leadership or management or any of those kind of things, they do modules on this. They do assignments on this. They do work placements on this. They're coming out with this as part of their mix, the way they think. But existing leadership, you know, they come from a different time. Yeah. And then there are new rules now and there are new things. And to be fair, you know, we're right in the middle of it, well, hopefully coming towards the end of a pandemic. What that's proved is we can adapt and we can adapt mm. quite quickly when we need to. Yeah. And people can learn new stuff and make good decisions on a whole load of new information. So innately, they've got the skill there and the ability. It's just the subject. It's understanding yes. um, what the issues are, what the opportunities are and and how to what making a more sustainable or more robustly sustainable decision actually means what mm -hmm. it looks like. It's one of the curses of, of corporate culture that that top-down hierarchy puts pressure on everybody at the top to have all the answers, and they often feel yeah. they should. And, of course, sustainability inverts that completely. No, it's it's always ground up, kind of literally, and local up to get to global issues. And that takes the pressure off. You can then listen to your people, find emotional truth, get the data, and respond to, to empirical evidence and, and get ideas you're not supposed to have yourself as a leader. That's That's a big thing you can communicate isn't it you often hear this term don't let perfection be the enemy of good mm. and it's something i've had to remind myself of a lot uh because in the past i've definitely oh yeah but we're missing this and we're not doing that and all the rest of it it's like hang on a minute what's the objective here it's the direction of travel yes um, if you're a few percent off momentum certainly is an energizer for passion to feel part of a team that's going somewhere so i asked jesse does it help being part of a group that, that where you've got people more likely, are, are the people around you more like that rather than being isolated as the one sustainability champion in a corporate setting? Do you find yourselves energized as a team? Internally, of course, you know, we're energized as a team because we feed off each other. We all care about this, right? Um, because we're all working towards the same goals. Externally, with, um, with the world around us, there's not as many people that are into the same things that we're into. But when you start connecting with clients that want to work with us on this or, or clients that we convince that this would be a good option for them to do, um, then you see that their curiosity is peaked and they want to get involved and they want to learn more and they really get excited about it. And so then it, it kind of reinvigorates our passion, right? Yeah. And then when we connect with other networks of people that are doing the same type of work that we're doing, because we can't work in a, an isolated bubble. And when we connect with networks, like GreenBuild is a great example, the GreenBuild conference uh, from the U.S. Green Building Council, that's where you see thousands of people from around the world come together that work in the same type of field or the same sustainable building world that actually care and get it. And when you go there, you're just like, wow, yes, they do exist. It's just, it's not just us in our little corner. <laughs> you're not alone. World. Yes, Yeah, exactly. we're, not, we're not alone. That must be empowering. Yeah. Practically, though, how does a sustainability champion break through into a flow that might lead to such momentum? I asked Ella. I'm interested to know, Ella, how you create that moment in the room with people, how you make a first emotional connection. You've got to walk in and make an experience, haven't you? How yeah. do you do that? 
to, to reach your clients in the first place? I think it has to be really, really interactive um, and personal to someone. So if you're kind of, you know, if I'm doing these workshops with, with people about envisioning the, the future of their company, it has to be specific to their company and it has to come from them because I don't know anything about their company, mm. um, but they, you know, they they have all of this knowledge. So it's really just giving them the tools of of create of of looking into this future, and get them to to feel what it's like to live in this future. You know, how do they feel? Who are the people around them? What do they smell? Love and it. what is this kind of emotion that they have? And then bringing them back to to kind of the now time and see, okay, how can we how can we make that happen? How can we make this future dream happen? It's a question I put to Matty also. But at the global leadership level, how does he get people around the table? Well, I think it is a little bit of a trust building. You know, okay. I, I would say a lot of trust building. Yeah, walking the, the corporate side to say, listen, if you want to solve these difficult problems you know you just can't solve it in your own place yeah you have to listen to hard conversations even on people who sharply criticize you mm-hmm. right you have to listen first you know and then uh, you know yeah you need to build this collective trust because the civil society groups will will not trust to be at the table of, of companies who have may have a history of being the problem, right? Yes. yes. Um, and so you have to build that trust, and 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 it takes. Sometimes it takes a long time. You know, it's mm. like, are you willing to acknowledge your history, which is really important. That's right? a justice issue, isn't it? Which is yeah. same at national level. Very tricky yeah. for a brand to do that. Yeah, and then when you acknowledge your history, then let's check the terms of engagement, which. Frankly, it's still a struggle because I find that these these multi-stakeholder efforts that I'm engaged with, people say they want to engage in a multi-stakeholder effort, but very often they want to do it on their timeline and their metrics, you know, and and from their culture, right? You know, largely it's, I want to deal with on corporate culture perspective. I want to design a result based on a product orientation, yes. right? Yes. So what I say is authentic, you know, you, you, you need to prep the people to be at the table, but the table cannot be your table. It's got to be a shared table mm. in terms of how do we define success? How do we establish uh, a safe space of engagement without judgment, you know? So mm. it's, it, it's as much a process of getting people to table engage as much as the sub, then you could get into the difficult things of substance. I found too often people say, "Let's put people in the room and let's jump to the substance." That will always fail. <laughs> Interesting. During the Obama administration, I led an effort to uh, implement the uh, President Obama's Open Government Initiative. It it include translation of information in a way that people can can understand. Yeah, it includes providing technical experts that the community can trust. It included redesigning the time and place of meetings mm-hmm. to align when communities can be at the table. Yeah. You know, so a lot of people talk about community engagement, but you have to like really break it down and build up these elements of comprehensive uh, participation, but really with a focus 
what I'm really focusing on, the communities that are most vulnerable, the most uh, uh, marginalized, if we cannot build a process that ensures that their voice is at the table, then the process will always leave them behind, you know? And the global issues of inequity, from my perspective, is because we're always solving problems around the mainstream of society and not dealing with the most difficult, the most uh, the communities that have been left behind. So we intentionally focused in on that. Once you provide the resources for communities to understand the issue on their own and in their own time, you know, but to their own technical service provider, be it a, a, an engineer or a lawyer, then there's a greater comfort level yeah. that they could then come into the room and engage in direct conversation. So that substantially changed the conversation because the conversation wasn't positional. Mm. It was, okay, now that I've understood the issue, then I could say, listen, here's what I want, right? And then you could then have a conversation, a trusted conversation around specific issues. Ian has an interesting additional take on language and something I'd been picturing in more recent years. Is a subtle part of the problem of global scale inertia the fact that different agency groups speak different languages every day? And that actually various different champions can feel very busy and engaged spending a lot of time talking to themselves. I think when we've had business savvy NGOs who've been contributing information, advice, um, content to help us to take the agenda forward, often on their behalf, but the, the shared agenda that they're also advocating. When we've got really uh, bus business literate NGOs who understand not just the business case, but the, the way in which you have to approach bringing a subject to the yeah. attention of the, of the yes. business, and it's not just going to happen overnight. There's a, there's a way to, to work around that and information that's useful uh, to be provided in a, in a particular way. The NGO community can, can help um, hugely uh, if, they're, if they're able to understand and, and, and work in a way that aligns with how a company works. So I think those two elements would be... That's interesting because what, what you're saying there really is in a way to, to get anything done, you do need to have sustainability people who speak business language obviously that's that's very well documented but but business people who speak sustainability activists and ngos that speak both business and sustainability and and everybody sort of breaking out of the little circle of language to speak yeah. each other's a bit better i think that that's really true and i think from an, an, an emotional perspective and bringing not just the the mind but the heart element into this whole agenda and it's not just sustainability where that's important it's everything's all aspects of business it's, it it's managed and led by people for people ultimately and, and no one likes the faceless corporate which is kind of so distant that it, it becomes impersonal and and and, and uh, lacking meaning to individuals, but the NGO community themselves, they know what's happening out there. They've got the data, mm -hmm. they've got the case study, they've got the people who have chosen to work in the NGO not-for-profit sector often because it's their passion. And if we can find ways to get that information from them, and I've had a number of really positive experiences in, in some of the, on some of the different sustainability issues where the NGO sector has been really, really powerful, hasn't been overly campaigning, but it has been able to provide the campaigning information 
that we can use as leverage to support the engagement within the business. And that's really gold dust. Um, It really is. I wonder if this is what sustainability champions end up going to work for. To be there in a turning point moment with someone. When the light goes on, it must have some important emotional impact back on them. But what happens then? I asked Jesse. Do you have a moment in mind when you first help somebody, convince somebody to go greener in their building ambitions? Was there a breakthrough moment you can think of that you really love? Okay. There was one time when um, I, have a, I have a client here who decided he wants to be sustainable. He already knew that he wanted to be sustainable. He wanted his new building to be sustainable. Um, and it's an orthodontics office, right? So most of our projects are these big, you know, huge projects that, you know, for multifamily buildings, large corporations, office, all this kind of stuff. But here we had this little independent orthodontics office and we'd sit down with him and we'd start talking with him about, you know, what can you do with capturing rainwater? You know, can you capture rainwater um, and then filter it and then use it for your landscape. And he was like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah, definitely want to do that. What about if we incorporate that into flushing toilets? Right. And he's like, whoa, wait a minute. Really? Right. Okay. No, wait, you're blowing my mind here. Yes. (laughs) I'm really interested in that. And what if we can put enough solar on the roof to actually offset all of your energy use? Right. And it's just, you get these like these little, it was like a series of aha moments that we were having in discussions with him that, you know, he knew he wanted a sustainable building, but he didn't really know what to do for that. Mm -hmm. And so when he came to us and we started talking with him about it and all the different ideas and all the different possibilities, his mind was exploding with, you know, the possibilities. And he, he just, he grabbed onto it and he really wanted to be a part of it. And as a small business owner, he actually went with us through the entire process, learning everything he could because he was so excited about it. Wow. And I, that's like one of the best inspiring client moments that I can think of. I mean, it's just, it was great. Well, I mean, and what you, I mean, any business, just, just from a business point of view, you want yeah. clients to become passionate about the issues. But certainly yes. from a, when you're in this screen business, you're creating an advocate there. You're creating fellow champions and other people, other fellow pilgrims, if I can use that word. You're going, I'm off on this now. That must have been infectious for you to have helped catalyze. Definitely, definitely. And he was, it was, it was this infectious thing. And now he wants to make it a showpiece for the world. So he's actually um, inviting students, classrooms, because his his um, his main patients our children, right, as an orthodontist. And so he's inviting schools and students to come and see what he's done. Um, and then he also wants to be kind of the, the poster child for this all around the world. So he's, he's, he, he's inviting other orthodontics offices from competitors, from people that are in his industry, colleagues, to come and check out his place. Amazing. They all want to be a part of it. Yeah. That's amazing. That's it, isn't it? that moment of emotional connection. It's the real impact of social impact, where someone lets it in and feels the first ping of ownership. In the end, it's the only way to trigger a cascade of new personal actions 
and new relationships. Changing the story you think you're in is frightening. It's actively traumatizing when it happens to you in a split second, like being caught in an accident or conflict. Perhaps changemakers are midwives trying to help people get through the pain of transformation as efficiently and healthily as possible, trying to help them dial down the drama and the fear of what's coming, see past some of the emotion, feel a little more in control. But storytelling isn't purely transactional. It's experiential. A sustainability champion has to be part mystic as well as mechanic. It's clear from everyone, I think, that there is significant emotional work to be done everywhere in the current courts of leadership to help reconnect them to reality and to bring alive to them personally the opportunities in front of them. And the answers may lie significantly with people far away from them at the human impact level of business and community. One of the biggest jobs ahead of us is developing the language and experiences that can bring these two worlds together in trust, to get at the real gold of effective practical insights. But I suggest there's also some blind spot culture change needed in all the different sectors already engaging with climate and social crises. NGOs, government bodies, investment groups, activists, business leaders, advertising agencies, artists, citizens. How much are we speaking shared language about sustainability? Who are we really talking to with our work? And who are we listening to? Don't let perfection become the enemy of good. When I asked each of my guests what they thought great change would look like to them, they each said that my role isn't even needed in the future. Because every role in every organisation will be seen as a sustainability job. In fact, everyone will just deploy better environmental social governance without even thinking of the word. What do sustainability champions most want now to help make better emotional impact with the possibilities of life beyond unsustainable crisis? I might sum it up with something Ella said to me. We need to help people fall in love with their world again. Whichever Momo you'd like more of, I'd love to hear your story. So jump straight to the Right Pocket Universe. Discover the story you think you're in. Listen to all the previous episodes of Momo's Characterful Research Cast at unseethefuture.com. Energize the story you're trying to tell. Engage me to bring alive your social impact storytelling at momozo.co. And enjoy more of Momo's playful thinking space where art, planet and futurism ideas intersect. Subscribe to my regular memos at momotempo.co.uk. Unsee the Future is a Momotempo production. Obviously.